this is Deacon Matt Newsom. I'm the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University, and this is our ongoing summer podcast series where we're looking at different heresies that the church has uh, dealt with throughout her history. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at a heresy called iconoclasm. Uh, iconoclasm uh, literally means um, image breakers, right? An iconoclast is an image breaker, one who breaks an image um, or an icon. And so I think it's important before we, we get into talking about this particular heresy that we know what we mean when we say the word icon. Um, today, in, in 21st century America, we hear the word icon used um, Probably most often, you know, talking about computer software, you know, you, you open up your laptop and you see desktop icons or, you know, on your smartphone, you have your favorite icons, you know, there on the home screen of your, your smartphone. Uh, and we think of icons as those little images, those little pictures um, that, uh, that represent those buttons that we, we push, uh, you know, to open up our favorite app or program or whatever it is we're trying to do. Um, or we might use the term icon uh, in reference to someone who is like a legend of Hollywood or a legend in uh, of a particular music genre or something like Johnny Cash. You know, would be described as a country music icon, somebody who's not not just famous, but like so famous for a particular uh, for a particular thing that that in his or her person. You know, that person kind of represents the whole, uh, you know, so someone who like, like Johnny Cash, you know, who is just so, so classic and, uh, uh, or, or Bob Dylan, you know, as a rock and roll icon, you know, we'll use the term icon in that way. Um, and really all of these uses of the word icon uh, just are different ways of applying that, that same term that, that really just means a representation, Right, a representation. Those little, those little pictures on your on your home screen on your phone or on your desktop, you know, that open up the apps or the programs. Those are representations of the program or the app that you intend to open. It's not the the app itself. Um, you know, in fact, you'll even notice this if you try and you know delete an icon from your desktop by dragging it over to the recycle bin. You know, you'll get a little message that pops up in Windows that says, you know. This will only delete the icon. It won't delete the program, and you have to click OK. Right? We recognize there's a distinction between the icon and that thing that the icon represents, and and that's true in religious iconography as well. When we're talking about religious iconography or icons within a Christian context, uh, generally we we think about a particular style of sacred art that comes from the eastern part of the church, right? A Byzantine icon or Russian icon, a Greek icon. Uh, we recognize that, that, uh, that in the east, the sacred art that they, that they venerate, that they produce, has, a, has particular stylistic qualities that are different from sacred art in the west. But in terms of its use, its veneration, what that sacred art is meant to do, um, you know, it, it kind of serves the same purpose. Uh, so what's the distinction between sacred art and art that is just a depiction of a sacred thing, right? So I could draw a picture of Jesus. I could draw a picture of the Virgin Mary. That doesn't necessarily make it sacred art. It's just a picture of something that's sacred. Um, but sacred art 
is an image that is used in veneration. It's an image of, uh, you know, of God, of Christ, of the saints. It's an image of something sacred that is specifically meant to be used in our worship, in our veneration. And the idea behind it is that we can't visibly see these things, right? We can't visibly see Christ any longer. We can't visibly see the Virgin Mary who's in heaven. We can't see the saints that are in heaven. But we, we have a devotion to these holy figures. And so by, by gazing upon a representative image of them, by gazing upon an icon, it allows our, our minds and our hearts to focus more intently on them. We don't venerate the, you know, the painting. We don't venerate the wood. We don't venerate the statue. We don't venerate the, the piece of art itself. But rather, we, we venerate that who is represented by the art. Um, we, we look upon the icon as a window, uh, as it were. And in fact, people who write about iconography will, will use that, that term, that it's a window or a portal into heaven. Um, because whatever veneration we show to that icon is, is projected onto that sacred figure that the icon represents. And, and this is especially lived out in the practices of, of the Eastern Church, where you'll see people not only praying before icons, like, you know, in the Western Church, you'll typically see people praying before statues, praying before images of, of Christ and the saints. Um, but in the East, that's lived out in a particular way. You'll see them, you know, um, kissing the icon, because whatever affection they show to that icon is, is really meant to be carried forward to who that icon represents. So if you kiss an image of Christ, you're, it's that same affection as if you were kissing Christ's face uh, you know, itself. And we do see this somewhat in the West. I'm thinking of like the Good Friday liturgy where we venerate the wood of the cross. Uh, you know, I typically will see people come before the crucifix during that liturgy and they'll kiss the feet uh, of Jesus that are nailed to the cross, right? It's just a statue, um, but by kissing, showing that affection to the statue, really what they're doing is they're showing that affection to Christ. And so it's, it's a representative uh, form of veneration. And it's always been part of, of the Christian practice. It's, uh, it's very deeply embedded in our, in our Christian religion. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? Our religion is an incarnational religion. We're, we're human beings, we have bodies, we have eyes that see, you know, we have fingers that, that touch, and we interact with things that we can see and touch and hear and taste and, and so forth. We interact with the world through our senses. And so when God communicates himself to us, he does so in, in a sensory way. Um, you know, this maybe isn't the primary reason for the incarnation, right? I mean, God became incarnate so that he could suffer and die for us on the cross, uniting his nature with our human nature and so that we could then become divinized, uh, you know, with him. But, but at least part of the, the, the benefit of God becoming incarnate is that we could interact with him in a physical way, right? He put on human flesh and he was born of Mary, born of a human woman in this world. Uh, we believe that God fed from his mother's breast, that God had messy diapers as, as an infant, right? And, and all the rest that comes with being uh, a human being. Um, we believe that God in Christ grew into a man. He, he learned the carpenter's trade, right? Which is a craft that involves 
manufacturing, taking elements of creation, transforming them into useful and, and indeed even beautiful things, right? Tables, chairs, stools, you know, uh, these, these things that we use. Um, uh, Christ was a craftsman. Um, we believe that in his public ministry, God continued to use physical creation to manifest his glory. His first miracle at Cana was turning water into wine. Um, when he healed the blind man, he used dirt and his own saliva to make mud that he smeared over his eyes. Um, you know, he instructed in the Bread of Life discourse in, in John chapter 6, he instructed his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood, right? And of course, the, the ultimate act of, of, of God's incarnate physicality really is his death on the cross, right? He really did suffer death in a bodily way on a wooden cross, and, and then his resurrection was just as much a, a physical reality as his death was. And this is why it's important in those post-Easter resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Um, the Gospel writers all record Christ doing things like eating and, and drinking. Uh, and St. Thomas, you know, putting his fingers into the wounds on Christ's body, right? So the, the incarnation is, is that foundational event of Christianity, and it's a very physical reality. Uh, and then we believe that God established a physical church, that the church exists as the body of Christ in a physical way on earth as well, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a real physical sense, led by a hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons. Uh, and, and it carries out physical sacraments uh, for us, right? These physical means of conveying Christ's grace through through words and water and bread and wine and holy oils and laying on of hands, Right? Our religion is, is just so physical. Um, and moreover, our faith, our theology, teaches us that because God is the author of, of physical creation, that physical creation is, is good. Right? In Genesis, uh, we, we look at the beginning of Genesis. Everything that God created, he looks at it and he says that it is good. And so sin doesn't come from, from this physical reality. Sin comes really from, from within our own hearts, from our own disordered desires, when we misuse these physical goods. And so, for example, drunkenness is a sin, but drinking is not. Gluttony is a sin, but food you know, isn't. Food is good. Adultery, fornication are sins, but the sexual act itself is good. Right? Creation is fundamentally good, even though it's fallen. And we see this in the Psalms, for example, in the hymns that we sing at, at Mass. They speak about how all of creation extols the glory of God. So all that's just to say it's just natural for us as Christians to use elements of creation, to use wood and plaster and paint and stained glass and mosaics and, and so forth to create beautiful images for the purpose of, of raising our minds and our hearts to God, to create images of these sacred things that we can venerate. Because if you think about the incarnation, that is the, the, the image of a sacred thing par excellence, right? Christ himself has become the foremost icon of God in the world. He is the Word made flesh. He is the image 
of, of God. And in our own lives, as we're, we're made in the image and likeness of God, we're called to be images of God as, as well, living icons, and that's what the saints you know, are. So this manufacture of sacred images and veneration of sacred images really is part and parcel of being, being Christian. And so from the beginning, we see images of Christ, images of his blessed mother, images of the saints. Um, we even, in our art, create images of the Father and the Holy Spirit, whom even though the Father and the Holy Spirit don't possess physical bodies like, like the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, does in Christ, we still represent them through art because we can represent the father in, um, you know, in a representative way, usually like an old man, you know, with a, with a beard, or we represent the Holy Spirit with the images that the scriptures provide for us, either as a dove or uh, a tongue of fire as he came at Pentecost, right? So all of these things, we have paintings, statues, stained glass, all these sacred objects that are used to help us in our worship, uh, and, and we, we do rightly venerate them. We don't worship the images, but we venerate them. We, we use these images to remind us of the real people, the real sacred uh, uh, people that they represent to aid us in our worship. All right? So with all that in mind, where did this idea of iconoclasm come from? This, this idea that, that these icons should be cast aside and, and should not be part of legitimate Christian worship. Well, last week in this podcast, we, we learned about the heresies of Nestorianism and Monophysitism. Um, the Nestorians, if you recall, they drew a sharp distinction between the divine nature and the human nature in Christ. They, they had a very hard line between those, those two things. Um, and so for them, for someone from an, coming from a Nestorian position, a picture of Jesus was very problematic theologically because a picture of Jesus could only really show Christ's human nature. You could never have a picture of his divine nature. So any, any icon of Christ, any attempt to depict Jesus in art was just theologically problematic uh, from a Nestorian point of view. It was necessarily incomplete. Now the Monophysites, um, in, you know, on the other hand, they their error was a little bit different. They claimed, they, their teaching was that Christ's human nature was just completely absorbed into the divine nature. If, if you recall, it was described as, you know, a drop of water within the ocean, right? It, maybe it was technically there, but it was, it was meaningless for all intents and purposes. So all that you really have left is the divine nature in Christ, which just subsumes and, and overwhelms Christ's human nature. And so, for them, for that way of thinking, since Christ really effectively didn't have a human nature, to depict him in a human form was false teaching. It, it, they, didn't, they didn't like that. Right? So that, that kind of led to certain iconoclastic tendencies among those, those two groups. Now, if you think back even earlier to the beginning of this podcast series when we talked about the Gnostics, Right. One key element of the Gnostic heresies was this idea of two gods, right? a, dual, a dualism between two gods, a good god who created the spiritual realm and uh, an evil god who created the physical world. And so for anyone who kind of had Gnostic tendencies, a portrayal of Jesus or the saints um, 
is kind of doubly wrong because, first of all, it's an attempt to represent something that was inherently evil. To represent the human body is to make a representation of something that they consider to be evil. And then secondly, you're making this representation of, of the human body with material goods like paint, you know, stone, glass, whatever, uh, that they also held to be evil because they viewed physical creation as evil. So if you subscribed to a Gnostic form of belief, you would also tend to have iconoclastic tendencies. So all of these, these heretical movements, again, if you recall what we've been talking about, they were felt strongest in the eastern part of the church. And even though they were all roundly condemned um, as contrary to the Catholic faith, they did kind of contribute certain ideas and attitudes to the culture at large that kind of percolated there in certain parts of, of the East. And finally, as we, we come into the, the mid-7th century, right, the, the, the middle 600s, in the East, you start to see a growing uh, incursion by the Muslim religion. Um, and in Islam, any portrayal of, um, uh, of, of one of the God's created beings, or especially the human form in art, is considered to be idolatry. So you may have noticed that in Muslim art, they tend to favor these really beautiful, intricate, geometric uh, patterns and, and shapes um, over uh, um, you know, a, a representative image of a created thing, like a bird or, um, or a tree or a lion or something, or especially, as I said, a human being. That's why it goes against the, the Muslim faith. And so as, you know, uh, Muslim forces invaded from the East and started to, to um, uh, kind of creep into what we would consider to be Christendom, um, a lot of the Eastern provinces... Um, of the Roman Empire, if they found themselves under Muslim rule, sacred art, even within Christianity, was effectively outlawed by by the new Muslim rulers. So you have a variety of influences coming to bear on the eastern part of the church um, that would eventually lead to some Christians questioning the long-held tradition and the established practice in the church of creating and venerating sacred images. Um, now, they wouldn't appeal to Nestorianism or Monophysitism, and, and certainly not Islam, um, to justify their disdain for images. Um, so they had to appeal to, to, other, um, to other arguments that um, they could claim would be native to Christianity. And so one of the things that they would do is they would make an appeal to, to primitive, primitism. Um, and by primitism, primitivism, what we mean, I can't say that word, so <laughs> I need to do some tongue twisters. Primitivism. Um, what we mean is this idea that you look back to the, the early church, or specifically the primitive church, usually defined as like the first 300 years of Christianity, um, as your model, right? And in a way, this kind of makes sense, right? Because it's a good thing, generally speaking, um, to, to go back and look at an earlier tradition when there is, um, you know, a debate about the veracity of something in the church. Uh, Catholic apologists use this all the time. You know, you, in fact, if, if I wanted to, uh, to argue with, with someone today about, 
how uh, the use of images is, is not contrary to the faith. I, I would go back and I would look through church history and I would point out you know, the long history of, of iconography in the church and, and I could find saints writing favorably about the use of icons, of iteration of icons. I would look to history to you know, at least demonstrate that this is something that is proper to Christianity. There's a historical precedent for it. Um, and when bishops of the church meet in, in ecumenical councils to uh, address heretical issues, as we've seen, one of the things that they do, the primary thing that they do, is they look to the past tradition. They look to apostolic tradition, and they they determine, you know, is this teaching that we're here to debate in line with apostolic tradition, or is it something that's foreign to apostolic tradition? So there's a certain sense in which the church does this on a routine basis, looks back and and, and looks for continuity in, in practice and especially in doctrine. But you can take that to an extreme, like, like anything else, I suppose. Um, and so if, if you do that, um, you can end up falling into the, to the error that you believe that just because something's older, it's better. And that's not true. That's, that's a false teaching. That's an extreme view of this. And that's what, what you know, I'm referring to as primitivism. Um, you know, that if we just need to go back to this imagined kind of pristine, pure, you know, Christianity. Um, and we see this cropping up even in, in modern days whenever new, you know, independent Protestant denominations are founded. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll, they'll you know, read the New Testament and they'll try and recreate a church based on what they believe the church originally was like, you know, way, way back when. Um, and, you know, and everyone has different ideas about that. Um, so if you think about the first, you know, 300 years of, of the church, um, yeah, they didn't have a lot of sacred images that they venerated at that time. It was a simpler time for the church. It was a time of martyrs. It was a time of great faith. Um, so in that sense, it had a lot of good there. Um, and that certainly you know, especially the witness of the martyrs should serve as an inspiration for us. But also, you know, the first 300 years of the church, that was a time before we had the canon of the Bible uh, codified. Uh, that was a time before we had the Nicene Creed. Um, that was a time when you even had the bishops themselves disagreeing over whether or not Christ was divine, right? That led to the Arian heresy. Um, and, you know, this is no small point, it was also a time when to publicly be a Christian was to be subject to the death penalty. So we can't look back on the first 300 years of the church and, and say, you know, that's the ideal of, of Christianity. There's, there's room for natural growth, there's room for natural development, organic development within the church um, that, uh, that is good and that leads us to a greater understanding of the deposit of faith um, that, that Christ handed on through the apostles. So in the specific case of veneration of sacred images, of course the church in the first 300 years didn't really have a tradition of venerating sacred images, at least not on a grand scale, because prior to the Edict of Milan, Christianity was outlawed. There were no great works of Christian art to venerate in the first 300 years because they, we didn't have Christian churches to house them in. Whatever sacred objects the early Christians did have, you know, by necessity had to be small and portable, um, easily concealed, right? Because Christianity was outlawed. 
So yeah, Christian worship during the first three centuries of the church was, was relatively simple and lacking in sacred art. But that was out of necessity, not because of anything intrinsic to, to the Christian faith itself. And I think it's telling that as soon as the persecutions ended, Christian art and architecture really started to flourish and take off. It's the first thing that people did was to create beautiful churches and then create beautiful art to adorn those churches with. But in any case, a lot of people, um, or at least some in the Eastern Church, um, saw in, in the contemporary cult of sacred images that, uh, that they observed um, in the, the 7th and 8th centuries um, a lack of this supposed simplicity that characterized you know, the early church. Um, and so some people would justify their iconoclastic tendencies by appealing to the simplicity of the early church. Other people would justify their iconoclastic tendencies by appealing, um, of all things, to the Eucharist. Right? They, um, you know, you might not see what does one have to do with the other. Well, they consider the Eucharist to be the perfect image of Christ. Right? This is his body. This is his sacramental body given for us. And because the Eucharist is the perfect image of Christ, therefore any other attempt we, we make to depict an image of Christ is idolatry. That was the argument. Um, it, was, it was always going to be inferior to, to the Eucharist and could lead to idolatry. Um, and they made a similar argument about the saints. The saints, they said, should not be depicted in art because no image could ever portray their true holiness. And because it's for their holiness that we venerate the saints, uh, not um, you know, not anything having to do with their physical appearance. Uh, the veneration of their images would also lead to idolatry. Um, so this was, these were some of the arguments that people would make against the veneration of sacred images. So that was going on, and finally in the year 720, so the early part of the 8th century, uh, several bishops in Asia Minor, uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, um, approached the Patriarch of Constantinople um, and asked him to forbid or at least limit, at least limit the cult of images um, in the church. Um, the Patriarch of Constantinople refused. Um, this was a minority position um, because the vast majority of Christians, especially in the East, where they have a strong tradition of, of sacred icons and iconography, um, you know, did not want to go along with this. And so the Patriarch of Constantinople refused to, uh, to do that. Um, but those bishops went back to their own diocese and under their own authority went ahead and started to implement policies of removing sacred images from places of worship um, and, and forbidding their veneration. And so this was how iconoclasm was formally introduced into the church in the East. And initially it was, it was a small thing. It was um, just limited to a few dioceses in the Patriarchate of Constantinople. But in the year 726, just a few years later, the, the Holy Roman Imp Emperor Leo III, not to be confused with Pope Leo III, different guy, the Emperor Leo III, for reasons we're not certain of, decided to embrace the iconoclastic viewpoint. Again, we don't really know what influenced that decision, but he became an iconoclast. And to, to set a good example for his people in the empire, 
he decided to have a, a very prominent and very popular image of Christ removed from the entrance to the imperial palace in Constantinople. Now, think about the, the typical reaction today that um, you, might, you might have in a, um, you know, a long-standing Catholic community um, that is now facing the imminent destruction of an old parish church. Um, or, or an old and venerated you know, statue or stained glass window, uh, something that is near and dear to the hearts of these people that they associate with their faith, and now someone is coming in and they want to destroy it. They want to tear it down. Right? People get very, very upset, um, justifiably so, right? When, when things that they hold near and dear, especially associated with their religious faith, are threatened. And people in the 8th century were no different to, to you and I now in, in that regard, right? So when the emperor sent in the imperial troops to remove this image of Christ from the palace gates, there were literally riots in the street. And not calm riots, violent riots. Um, there were civilians and soldiers both that were killed during this, this conflict that the crowds had with the imperial troops removing this image. Um, it was very violent. Uh, eventually it was, it was suppressed by force, and those involved in, um, you know, in, in protesting the removal of this image were, were punished. Now, the Patriarch of Constantinople was still against this iconoclast policy. Um, and he disagreed with what Leo III was, was doing. Um, but the emperor didn't seem to care. He just kind of continued um, um, kind of enforcing iconoclasm in Constantinople despite the objections of, of the bishop. Um, and uh, that kind of came to a formal head in the year 730 on, on January the 17th the Emperor Leo III issued a formal declaration making iconoclasm the official policy of the Roman Empire, the whole Roman Empire. Now, I want to pause for a moment just to underscore how unusual this action was from the Emperor. Now, We've seen emperors in the past meddle in the affairs of the church as we've kind of looked through these different different heresies and these different controversies in the church. But this was a little bit different because previously, you know, the Roman emperor, if they intervened in doctrinal issues in the church, their goal was always to kind of restore unity. So they, they might not have always been right in their doctrinal understanding. They might have overstepped their bounds in, in their actions vis-a-vis -vis the church uh, authorities. But you know, they were always intervening in response to, to what they perceived as a crisis in the church, uh, an issue, a disagreement that was dividing the church, and they wanted... Um, you know, unity within the Roman Empire, religious unity, and so they would intervene to try and restore that that unity, right, right or wrong. Uh, that was that was their goal. That's why they, you know, uh, would call councils, right? Starting with the Emperor Constantine, who called the Council of Nicaea in 325, it was to settle the Arian controversy. Constantine didn't really have a dog in the fight. He just wanted an answer. He wanted the church to all be on one page, you know. And that's typically how the emperors would, would act. They would step in 
uh, and act whenever uh, a division threatened the religion of the empire. But this was different with Leo the Third. This was different because there was no division in the church. You know, not around this issue. Uh, iconoclasm was just this tiny little problem that was only really affecting certain parts of the church in Asia Minor. It was not a big deal at this point. But Leo III made it a big deal. He, he didn't act to solve a problem or to, to mend a division in the church. You know, he was the one that literally caused the problem um, because he was attempting to enforce iconoclasm, which up to this point had only affected a really small part of the church in the eastern part of the empire. He was wanting to enforce that throughout the entire empire, which at this point was, was pretty much the church. The empire and the, the church were, were co-terminal. So he was making this the universal policy for, for the church. And that especially alienated Christians in the West, who really had no tendencies towards iconoclasm whatsoever, and, and were largely unaffected by, by this iconoclast movement that was just limited up until now to a few dioceses in, in the East. Um, not to mention the fact that Leo's actions just completely disregarded the authority of the Bishop of Rome. Um, so when he learned about this in the year 731, Pope Gregory III, Bishop of Rome, uh, issued a proclamation, a declaration, that anyone who defiles a sacred image excommunicates himself from the church. It's an excommunicable offense to defile in any way a sacred image. Um, he attempted to send that, uh, that decree to the emperor himself, and the emperor had the papal uh, representatives imprisoned, and actually sent a fleet of, um, of warships to, to invade Italy in response, but they, ne they never made it there. They were actually shipwrecked due to a, a storm, which we'll mention that again uh, in, in a little bit. But uh, yeah, Pope Gregory III was not real fond of, of Leo's attempting to just kind of um, enforce um, by, uh, just by his own will and his military strength um, this, this doctrinal issue, this iconoclastic uh, heresy uh, throughout the universal church. Um, so in any case, the emperor's actions here were also kind of indicative of a change of attitude um, of the church in the East, and you know, in terms of a, just a disregard for the authority of, of the Roman uh, bishop. Um, we, uh, as Catholics, hold the Bishop of Rome in a special regard because we understand him to be the successor of St. Peter, who was head of the Apostles. Um, Rome also, you know, historically was the capital of the Roman Empire, um, and so the Bishop of Rome had certain political um, uh, advantages uh, and influences, which shifted to Constantinople when the seat of power in the empire shifted to Constantinople. Um, and so there develops this tendency in the East uh, at this point of um, presuming that the Patriarch of Constantinople um, really is the the seat of authority in the church because that's where the seat of power is in the secular government. And so you start to see a certain disregard um, for the, the Bishop of Rome, um, from not universally in the East, but from certain powers that be in the East. And so Leo III's actions here um, are kind of indicative towards that. Um, but the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Bishop of Constantinople, he, he himself did not support the emperor in, in 
uh, in his iconoclasm. Um, but he was allowed to resign in peace. Uh, there were other bishops and clergy that opposed Leo III's um, iconoclastic policy that did not fare so well. Um, many of them were, were persecuted and some actually killed uh, because of their defense of the use of sacred art. So now, here we have it, the official policy of the Roman Empire is that the veneration of sacred images is, uh, is idolatry. And um, so those who oppose that policy need to make a rational defense for their position. And you start to see saints rise up in the church that defend the use of sacred art in a rational way. Um, and the shining star of, of this defense is a, a saint named St. John of Damascus, or sometimes called St. John Damascene. Um, and he argued that um, the only real justification for iconoclasm is either rooted in monophysitism, right, by saying that Christ's humanity is totally absorbed in, into his divinity, so you can't really depict Christ in human form, um, or um, going back to the Gnostic error that said that all matter is evil, and, and by portraying... Um, uh, you know, anything holy in a physical form, you're, you're doing something evil. Um, and both of these, these errors had been unquestionably condemned by the church in past councils, and so they're undefensible. And therefore, iconoclasm is undefensible and totally without justification. Um, St. John Damascene is, uh, he was so vocal and outspoken in his support for icons that he's kind of considered today the, the patron saint of iconography and, 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 um, um, and iconographers. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite uh, places to, to purchase um, icons is uh, um, a store called Damascene Gallery. So uh, this is not a paid advertisement, but just a shout out to my friends in Damascene Gallery. Um, a lot of the icons that I use in my own prayer and, and veneration uh, um, were made by them. Um, so St. John um, Damascene, he was, he was born in the year 676, um, in, in Damascus, hence his name. Uh, but he spent most of his life um, as, as a monk um, in Jerusalem, um, so not in Constantinople. So he was kind of a little bit less affected by Leo III's um, policies. Um, Jerusalem during um, John's life was under Muslim rule, um, which uh, ironically kind of protected him from some of the, the iconoclastic policies that uh, that were enforced in the Holy Roman Empire uh, at this time. Um, so he's most famous for his writings against the iconoclasts, um, but uh, he also wrote um, quite a bit of, of theological work and, and quite a bit of poetry um, as well that's used in the uh, in the liturgies of um, of the Eastern Eastern Church. So uh, Saint John of Damascus is is really a shining star um, of the defense of sacred images during this this time in the church. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, in the year seven forty one, uh, the emperor Leo the Third died, and his son Constantine the Fifth assumed the throne. Um, Constantine argued against uh, John Damascene by saying that. You know, it's impossible to portray the divine in, in physical form, and therefore any images of Christ are rightly forbidden. Um, so he, he argued against St. Against John, and he decided that, you know, we need to call a council to settle this issue uh, in the church. And so he called a council in the year 754, 
But, even though there were over 300 bishops in attendance at this council, every single one of them was from Constantinople, right? The, the, the Patriarchate of Constantinople. There was no representation from the Patriarchs of Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, or, most importantly, of Rome. In other words, the whole rest of the church. And so even though there were over 300 bishops there, you could hardly consider this to be an ecumenical council um, with representation from only such a small part of the church. Um, not surprisingly, given the limited representation, the council decided in favor of iconoclasm, uh, and they um, issued decrees prohibiting, prohibiting the making and veneration of, of icons. Right? Uh, the council said that the only proper image of Christ is the Holy Eucharist. So now you have a situation where iconoclasm is not just an imperial policy, but actually has um, the authority of uh, um, a supposed church council uh, behind it. Um, so at least the church in Constantinople recognized that as, as a council. Um, that didn't settle the issue like, um, like Constantine uh, had hoped. It only added fuel to the fire and made things worse. You know, e even though iconoclasm is a heresy that affected the eastern part of the church, you have to understand that most Christians in the east had a strong veneration to icons. So the east in general is certainly not iconoclastic. And this is especially true of the eastern monks. The, the monastic communities. They were devoutly attached to sacred art, and they strongly resisted the decrees of this, um, this false council. Um, and that meant also challenging the decrees of the emperor, which put them in real physical danger. Um, Constantine V reacted quite violently against these monasteries. He forced most of the monks into military service, he confiscated the monasteries and turned them into barracks. If uh, a monk would resist, he was tortured, banished, and even in many cases put to death. So as time went on, Constantine grew more and more severe in his iconoclastic views and in his enforcing of those iconoclastic views. Um, the, the false council in Jerusalem had forbidden making or honoring sacred images, um, but it allowed sacred images already in existence to remain uh, and to be preserved you know, as works of art, um, if not you know, objects for devotion. But in 764, uh, Constantine's uh, iconoclasm had grown to such a point that you know, he would destroy these images, images that already existed, he would destroy them. Um, and he kind of went beyond even just the destruction of images, but he was forbidding the use of relics, um, and he was forbidding even the very mention of the names of saints. Meanwhile, the monks remained very courageous in their opposition to, to all of these policies. They began to distribute pamphlets in defense of icons, now, when I say distributing pamphlets, you need to remember this was centuries before the invention of the printing press. So to distribute these pamphlets, everything had to be copied by hand, which was very time-consuming. But that was the labor that the monks specialized in, right? They were the copyists. They, they were the scribes. And so they were kind of using their, their natural skills and talents that they had 
in defense of the faith by by um, uh, creating and then distributing these pamphlets in defense of iconography. Um, a lot of the monks sought refuge in, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Alexandria, in Rome, these other great um, uh, sees of the church uh, that never embraced uh, um, iconoclasm. Um, and were, were more out of reach of the emperor's military influence than, than Constantinople was. So Constantine V died in the year 775. Um, his successor was uh, Leo IV. Um, and Leo IV kept up his father's iconoclastic policies, but he didn't pursue them with as much vigor. Leo's wife, Irene, had a personal devotion to sacred art. And so she was able to kind of temper the, the persecutions um, with, with her influence on, on Leo. Um, Leo IV died just a few short years later, and then Irene, his wife, became regent for their underage son, who um, would rule as Constantine VI. So while Irene was ruling as regent, the iconoclastic persecution ended. And the monks, who had been so faithful to defending the church's use of, of icons, um, were allowed to, to return to their monasteries. They were allowed to solicit new vocations to monastic life. Uh, and even new monasteries were founded during this time. But there remained that sticky issue of the that false council, so-called council of Constantinople in 754 whose decrees were still technically in effect. Um, you know, according to the law of the church, iconography, veneration of icons, was still forbidden. So Irene and the, the, the new patriarch of Constantinople, a bishop named Tarasius, um, they approached the pope, Pope Hadrian, and asked him, please call an ecumenical council. The pope agreed, and the result was the Second Council of Nicaea that was held in the year 787. In addition to over 300 bishops, this council was um, remarkable because it was also attended by monks and abbots who unusually were allowed to vote in the council, even though they were not bishops. Uh, and this was most likely done in recognition of their, their courage that they had demonstrated uh, in the face of such strong oppression uh, in their defense of icons. Now, um, the iconoclast party really didn't make a strong showing at the council. Uh, the iconoclast position was easily defeated. Um, as I had mentioned, there's really no strong theological arguments for it. Um, the most enthusiastic um, advocates for iconoclasm had been, you know, the emperors, Leo III and then Constantine V. Um, among the clergy, uh, iconoclasm had very little support. Um, and since both of those emperors were now dead, um, you know, it seemed fitting that this unorthodox uh, and, and very violent movement um, should die with them. So the Second Council of Nicaea formally condemned iconoclasm as a heresy. Specifically, it stated that images of Christ and images of the saints could be venerated, though not adored, because adoration is reserved for the persons of the Holy Trinity alone. Veneration could be showed through candles and incense uh, as marks of honor for the person that's represented in the icon. Um, just as an interesting kind of side note about linguistics here, the on the difference between veneration and adoration, um, you may note if you ever get your hands on some older Catholic books, um, including some as recently as the early 20th century, 
some of them will speak about worshiping images. Uh, and sometimes you'll run into this in, in terms of uh, the Virgin Mary as well. You'll read older Catholic texts that talk about worshiping Mary. And today we might think of that worshiping an image or worshiping a saint as idolatry. Um, you know, we might wonder, you know, has the Catholic Church, you know, changed her teaching on this or what's going on? Um, well, Catholic teaching hasn't changed, but our English language has changed. So in the past, the word worship simply meant to show, a, show high respect. Um, so people would talk about worshiping images, people would talk about worshiping saints, but people would also talk about children, you know, needing to worship their parents. Um, you still see uh, remnants of this usage um, today in England, um, where they refer to judges um, as your worship, right? It's an archaic use of that of that term. Today, though, we use the word worship specifically to mean the honor that's rightfully given to God alone. Um, and so we would never today speak about worshiping an image or worshiping Mary. Um, but what we call worship today is more historically um, what they meant by the term adoration. And that's why we refer to our worship of Christ in the Eucharist as Eucharistic adoration, right? Or St. Thomas Aquinas' hymn, uh, Adoro Te Devote, right? Adoration, that adoro, that worship of God alone. Um, but outside of the church, it's kind of in the common everyday speech, um, we talk about things being adorable, um, you know, we might say a, a puppy is adorable, right? Um, or a cute little toddler is so adorable. Now, we're not worshiping the puppy or we're not worshiping the cute little toddler, um, but that's literally what the word adorable means. It means worthy of, of <laughs> you know, that honor due to God. So just be mindful of that, that shift in um, in our English English language. So the Second Council of Nicaea said that we could venerate images or worship images in, in the sense of that older use of the word worship, but God alone could be adored. Or we might say in our modern sense of the word worship, God alone can be, can be worshipped. Um, so there you go. So that's the Second Council of Nicaea. Um, again, those decrees came as no surprise because there was such little support for iconoclasm among the clergy. Um, the church had already condemned, um, you know, Gnostic dualism and Nestorianism and Monophysitism um, and all these arguments that, that were being used in, in favor of iconoclasm, um, you know, had, they'd all been condemned by the church. And so theologically speaking, iconoclasm was dead on arrival. Um, but as you've learned, if you've been paying attention to this series, heresies in the church rarely just die off once the church condemns them. There's always more to it than just a pure theological um, argument. There's always a political element as well, uh, and there's always a cultural element at play. Um, and as the 8th century drew to a close, as the 9th century began, um, you started to have Muslim aggression really continuing to spread Islam throughout the Eastern Empire. A lot of Christians that were fleeing Muslim rule came into Constantinople, and a lot of those happened to have come from areas where the iconoclast movement had the most support. And not only did they come from areas that had embraced iconoclasm more, but they also blamed the rise of Islam and the military losses of the Christian empire 
on the endorsement of image veneration. They, they drew a connection here between these two things, right? Right as the church was saying, yes, image veneration is good and it's okay to venerate sacred images, the church in the East was suffering these military losses, you know, Islam was coming in and taking control. They connected those two events, right? They said, oh, the empire was blessed by God during the reigns of Leo III and Constantine V, you know, who strongly supported that iconoclastic policy. But now that the imperial policy has changed and icons are, are venerated again, God is, is blessing the Muslims. And, oh, look, Muslims don't utilize sacred images. Muslims don't allow images of created things, right? They forbid the use of sacred images. So you start to get this, this kind of second wave argument for iconoclasm coming out of, of the eastern part of the church again. And the situation in Constantinople grew volatile enough that in December of the year 814, uh, the emperor, Leo V, uh, bowed to political pressure, and he did the same thing that Leo III had done. He removed that very same um, prominent image of Christ from the palace gates in Constantinople. Um, and then he called for a synod of bishops to meet um, that next Easter. And, and he only invited bishops to come that he knew would, would favor an iconoclastic policy. And so under that imperial pressure, that synod of bishops reinstated iconoclasm in Constantinople. And they, they voted to depose the patriarch of Constantinople who, who opposed that whole mess. So once again, you have the resources of the Byzantine Empire put towards the destruction of sacred art. But the theological arguments for this, this second birth of iconoclasm, this resurgence of iconoclasm, were, were very weak because they'd all been tried and, and defeated, you know, in, in the first wave of iconoclasm, right? Um, so during that first wave of iconoclasm, the resistance had come primarily from the monasteries. But this time, during the second wave, you know, not only did the monks continue to reject iconoclasm, but the strongest resistance this time actually came from the bishops of the church. Now, a lot of the bishops of the church now had been former monks who were elevated to the episcopacy because of the courage that they displayed during the first iconoclastic persecution. So now here they were in positions of great power in the church, and they were having none of it. Right? So in the year 820, Leo V was assassinated, and his successor was the Emperor Michael II. Um, Michael II continued his predecessor's iconoclastic policies, but without quite as much vigor. Um, he actually seemed to prefer to avoid the issue. Uh, at one point, he issued a decree, an imperial decree, forbidding the discussion of the matter of images, uh, which everybody pretty much ignored because it continued to be a hot-button issue. Um, meanwhile, the empire continued to uh, suffer at the hands of Muslim invasion. Um, and on top of that, Michael, uh, the Emperor Michael had to deal with a, with a revolt by the Slavs who laid siege to Constantinople. Um, so he had a lot on his mind other than sacred images. So that's um, perhaps why he didn't uh, enforce the iconoclastic policies with quite as much vigor. Uh, he died in the year 829. Um, his son, Theophilus, um, also was uh, an iconoclast. Um, and the Bishop of Constantinople at this time, um, Bishop named John the Seventh, was an iconoclast 
as well. So once again, the persecutions intensified um, of those who, who supported the veneration of sacred images. Um, but with the empire continuing to face threats of invasion and revolt, um, those who were arguing or had been arguing that, you know, God would just bless them if we, you know, or bless the empire if we reinstitute iconoclasm as imperial policy. Uh, those arguments were starting to sound a little weak now, right? Because, you know, the emperor was now endorsing iconoclasm again, but things were not really getting much better from a, uh, a military and political standpoint. Um, Theoph uh, Theophilus's wife, Theodora, uh, did not share her husband's iconoclastic views. She um, uh, had a devotion to sacred imagery, uh, and she even maintained her own private collection of, of sacred art, kind of like um, you know Irene uh, before that, that we mentioned. Um, and also, like Irene before, um, the uh, Theophilus died in the year 842, and uh, Theodora ended up ruling as regent for their underage uh, son, who would reign as Michael III. So uh, once all of that kind of came about, the Patriarch of Constantinople, um, who John VII, who had been an iconoclast, he resigned. A new Patriarch was appointed named Methodius, and Theodora and Methodius together, they called a synod in the year 843 that reaffirmed the veneration of images and condemned iconoclasm again. After that synod, iconoclasm died in the East. It, it really seemed to have lost all of its vigor at that point. Again, never really had strong theological arguments. The political reasons for supporting it had, had kind of grown tired. There was no real support from the clergy. There was no real support from the great bulk of the laity who, who you know, uh, had strong devotion to sacred images. Um, and now the imperial powers didn't support it, so it was, for all intents and purposes, put to rest at this point. And iconoclasm wouldn't really resurface in the church again until uh, the Protestant rebellion really in a lot of ways reintroduced it, but this time in the western part of the church. But in the east, the iconoclastic heresy, even though it, it, it died out and the east continued in a very strong tradition of, of sacred art and, and uh, has a very strong tradition of iconography still today, the result of a lot of this um, political turmoil that, that it brought about um, really had lasting effects on the church in terms of the relationship between the West and the East. Um, I had mentioned before at the beginning of the iconoclast heresy when Pope Gregory III um, tried to send word of his decree excommunicating anyone who would um, damage a sacred image, um, get word to the emperor, Leo III, um, Leo III responded by imprisoning the papal messengers and sending a fleet of warships to Italy. Now, by divine providence, those ships were sunk in a violent storm before they reached Italy. But Rome got the message nonetheless, right? The Byzantine Empire didn't need or want Rome's involvement in her affairs, even in matters of the church. That message came across loud and clear. And, you know, if you think back over the past several weeks as we've, we've gone through a lot of these heresies, all the heresies that we've really looked at... Um, except for the Pelagian you know, heresy, 
historically up until this point have come from the East. The, the West, theologically speaking, was relatively a much more stable part of the church at this time. Right? And so it's not hard for you know, these, you know, the, the powers that be in the Western church to kind of come to the conclusion that you know, we don't really need all of that strife and turmoil. If these Eastern politicians, if the Eastern emperor doesn't feel like they need the patriarch of the West, the Bishop of Rome, you know, maybe the patriarch of the West doesn't need their imperial politics either. And so that whole thing just kind of contributed to a, a cultural divide uh, and a political divide between the Eastern and Western uh, lungs of the church. Um, just to tie this in to, to what's going on in history, otherwise in the year 800, which is kind of right in the middle of, of this whole iconoclastic uh, kerfuffle, um, the Emperor Charlemagne was inaugurated by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day. Um, and that's celebrated in the history of, of Western Europe. Um, but it sent a real strong message to the rulers in, of Byzantium, right? We don't need your emperors. We're going to have our own emperors. We don't need your approval for this. Um, and so the Holy Roman Empire was, was recreated in the West, um, and the Byzantine Empire, from the Western perspective, more or less cast aside. Um, now, during the second wave of iconoclastic persecution, there was one monk named St. Theodore who specifically advocated looking to Rome as the standard for all of the churches. He wrote, Whatever novelty is brought into the church by those who wander from the truth must certainly be referred to Peter or his successor. Save us, chief pastor of the church under heaven. He further wrote that if we want to protect traditional Christianity from imperial decrees and, and wayward, you know, councils, uh, pseudo-councils and synods, uh, that we have to, quote, arrange that a decision be received from old Rome as the custom had been handed down from the beginning by the tradition of our fathers, end quote. But his words of wisdom largely fell on, on deaf ears in the East. Um, you know, even... Even Theodora and her advisors, when they called a synod in 843 to, to finally declare an end to iconoclasm, actually didn't even involve the Pope or any Western bishop at all in those proceedings. They were, they were just handling them there in the East as an, internal, as an internal thing. So East and West wouldn't formally separate until the year 1054, but events such as this, this iconoclastic heresy, would kind of pave the way um, for that. Uh, before we close out on iconoclasm, I want to, to make one further point. Um, I mentioned that iconoclasm would kind of make a resurgence in the western part of the church um, as part of the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, and, and we will deal with the Protestant Reformation in a later episode. But because this is a point in which Catholics uh, today still get challenged on our veneration of sacred images, I want to just respond to one of the more common um, um, uh, arguments that people make against um, the Catholic veneration of sacred images, and that is that you know that it violates the Ten Commandments. Um, if you've ever noticed, if you're looking at you know sometimes you'll see the Ten Commandments on billboards or something on the side of the highway, or you'll pick up you know different pamphlets. Sometimes you'll see them numbered a little bit differently than you may be used to seeing them numbered in the in the Catholic Church. Um, 
if you if you open up your Bibles, because you're all listening to this with a Bible in your lap, I'm sure, uh, if you look, in, you know, grab a Bible, if you look in, in Exodus chapter 20, this is where the Ten Commandments are given to us, and you'll notice that the enumeration of the commandments, right, one, two, three, four, five, and so forth, that's actually not part of the biblical text. Um, the commandments are just kind of just kind of given out without any kind of numbering. Uh, now we know that there's ten of them because it's called the Decalogue, or literally the ten words, but how we divide them into ten, you know, there are different traditions around that. Um, so the first commandment is, you know, not to worship false gods, right? But I'm going to read to you, starting in Exodus 20, verse 2, what this commandment literally states. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their ancestors' wickedness on the children of those who hate me down to the third and fourth generation, but showing love down to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commands. So from our Catholic tradition, we recognize that whole thing, that whole paragraph, verses 2 through 6, to be the first commandment, right? And, or kind of summarized in, you know, you shall have no gods before me, right? Don't worship false gods. In certain Protestant traditions, they will divide that. So they reckon as the first commandment, you shall ha not have other gods beside me. And then they will consider as the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. So they view the veneration of sacred images as counter to the second commandment, right? Now, what we would consider the second commandment is not to invoke the name of the Lord your God in vain. They count that as the third and so forth. Well, how do they get ten, right, if they split that first one into two? And it's because they combine what we would consider to be the final two commandments, not to covet your neighbor's wife and not to covet your neighbor's uh, possessions, um, in, into one just don't covet. Um, we recognize those more properly uh, as two separate ones because the, the sinful inclination that would lead one to covet his neighbor's wife is a different sort of sinful inclination than that that would lead one to covet you know, your neighbor's possessions. We're talking about something stemming from lust versus something stemming from greed. And so we recognize those as two distinct things, um, whereas in, in that Protestant tradition that, um, uh, that separates out you know, the, the, the making of graven images from the worship of false gods, they would consider those just one, don't, don't covet. So how do we know that they're not right, right? Why, why aren't they right when they say, okay, commandment one, don't have other gods besides me, and commandment two, don't make for yourself, a, you know, a graven image, don't make for yourself an idol. Well, if you read it in context, what God is forbidding here is, is the worship of false idols, you know, when he says, you shall have no other gods besides me, what he's saying is, don't worship false idols. Any god other than God is a false god, is a false idol. 
And what did people do in this time when they worshipped false idols? Well, we see this a little bit later on in Exodus, where they make for themselves a molten calf, and they bow down and they worship it. They literally make images of things. They make images of these false gods in the form of a, of a calf, in the form of um, you know whatever, and they bow down and they worship it. So God is saying here, don't do that. Right? Don't make an image for the sake of worshiping it. Right? That's idolatry. And the Catholic Church agrees with that. You know, don't. Don't worship a false image. Um, don't show an image um, the same uh, uh, honor that is rightly shown only to God. Don't worship that image as if it were God. But this does not mean that you can't make images at all. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't venerate uh, an image uh, if it uh, assists you in, in venerating something sacred like Christ or, or one of the saints, right? Um, if it serves as a focal point for your mind and your heart as you're, as you're praying, which is what icons are meant to do, right? To be those windows into heaven. So we know that this you know, command in Exodus was, doesn't forbid the making of images generally because if you, you know, flip just a few pages ahead in your Bible, a little bit later on in Exodus chapter 25, when it's talking about um, you know, God giving instructions for making the Ark of the Covenant, God specifically commands them to make images of angels and put them on the lid of the Ark. So in, in chapter 25, starting with verse 17, it says, You shall make then a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. Make two cherubim of beaten gold for the two ends of the cover. Make one cherub at one end and the other at the other end of one piece with the cover at each end. The cherubim shall have their wings spread out above, sheltering the cover with them, and they shall face each other with their faces looking toward the cover. This cover you shall then place on top of the ark. So, again, we know God is not forbidding the making of, of images or the use of sacred images um, in, in general because just a few chapters later, he commands them to make these sacred images. But obviously the Israelites were not worshipping those cherubim as false idols, nor do we when we utilize sacred images in our art and in our worship. Um, neither do we worship those, those as false idols, but rather we use them to increase our devotion to that which is holy, uh, including God himself who gave us the perfect, the perfect icon, the, the, the image of himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, so, that's it for, for today, uh, for the Iconoclastic Heresy. Uh, next week, we're going to shift gears a little bit and move into some of the, the great um, medieval heresies, which, um, uh, unlike a lot of the, the early heresies that we've been talking about, uh, did affect, principally, the Western part of the church. Um, so we're going to shift gears, kind of go into the Middle Ages, um, and talk about you know the Cathars and Albigensians and and those sort of things, which are some interesting characters, uh, and we'll meet great heroes of the faith like uh, like Saint Francis and Saint Dominic and, uh, and and others. So tune in next week. I hope you all have a blessed week. Um, pray for me. I will continue to to pray for you, and I look forward to having you all back on campus this August. God bless.